0: Last week in our series, Clash of Dynasties, we looked at Jesus' statement, His promise, when He said, I will come again. But now we tackle the question, when? Are we close, or is it something that's going to happen a long time from now? Well, today we're going to discover that God has a clock, and with that clock, we get a sense of where we are. You know, today we use our smartphones, or I have an Apple Watch, and I'm constantly checking the time, because you see, clocks tell us the time, but that tells us so much more than just the time itself. For instance, when I look at the time, I look at how much time I have before something is supposed to happen. I have an appointment later today, and when I see the time, I know how much time I have left. Sometimes the time tells us that we need to be urgent about something, and occasionally when I look at the time, I realize I've missed an appointment and I'm too late. Well, today we're going to look at God's clock as it relates to Jesus' promise that he would come again. You know, the Bible tells us that we need to be thinking seriously about the times that we're living in. In the book of Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, the Bible says, it's all more urgent. You need to know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. Well, as we look at the Bible, God does have a clock. And interestingly, His clock is a nation, and that nation is Israel. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus gave a sermon while He was still on the earth that we call the Olivet Discourse. What makes this sermon so special is He is answering a question that the disciples asked about when the end would come and how things would be in the last days. Look at this. In Matthew chapter 24, at the beginning of this message Jesus preached, his disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? I want you to look at Jesus' answer. He said, learn a lesson from the fig tree. Well, in the Bible, there are symbols. And one of the greatest symbols is the fig tree. It's always been a symbol, Of the nation Israel. So Jesus now is responding to the disciples' question Tell us about the end times and when will all these things happen? And Jesus said, Take a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, listen to this when you see all these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Now, I realize that could be a little bit of a fog right now, but I want us to just back away from it and see what we can pull from Jesus' statement. The disciples have asked, when will the end come? what will signal that we are in the last days? And Jesus said, the fig tree. And he said, when you see these things begin to happen, you will know that you're very close. Well, with Israel being established as God's clock, let's begin to unpack the story of the nation of Israel. To understand Israel as a nation, you need to understand that God made them two special deals. Bible students will call these covenants, but these are arrangements that God made with the nation of Israel from the very beginning, which means that Israel is God's chosen people. Now, let's talk about this first deal that God made with the nation of Israel. And we have to understand that God began the nation with one person, Abraham, and he made a deal with Abraham, but Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. Look at this in Genesis chapter 12 and verses one through three, we get God's arrangement with the nation of Israel. And you're going to notice five promises that he makes to Israel. We'll look at these in just a moment, but now let's read. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land where I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families on the earth will be blessed because of you. The first deal that God makes with Israel is five promises, and I want you to think about them. First of all, God said, I will make you into a great nation. That's quite a statement to make to one person. And then God said, I, God, will bless you. And then the third thing, God said, you will be a blessing to others. Sometimes when people discover that God has chosen the nation of Israel as his chosen people, there are those who look at that as a racial thing, as though that God is saying the people from Israel were superior. But what we must understand is that the nation of Israel was chosen not to just simply be God's favorite people. They were chosen as an agency through which God could bless the whole world. The fourth promise, and it remains in effect to this day, God said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And then finally, once again, just as in the third promise, God says, through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. Hey, let me give you a fact. Did you know that of all the Nobel Peace Prizes, 25% of those Nobel Peace Prizes have been won by Jewish people, and yet the Jewish global population is less than two-tenths of one percent? Think about that again. The Jewish global population is way less than one percent, and yet 25% 25% of Nobel Peace Prizes have been won by Jewish people. Indeed, God has kept His promise. Through the nation of Israel, God has blessed all the families of the world. Now, there are so many examples of this. Uh, I'm just going to give you a few, but I want you to think about these. Albert Einstein, the physicist, he developed the theory of relativity, one of the two main themes of modern physics. How about Jonas Salk, who created the first polio vaccine? Albert Sabin, who developed the oral vaccine for polio. Selman Wachsman, who discovered streptomycin and coined the word antibiotic. Gabriel Lippmann, who discovered color photography. Barack Bloomberg discovered the origin and spread of infectious diseases. G. Edelman discovered the chemical structure of antibiotics. Brighton Epstein identified the first cancer virus. Julius Mayer discovered the law of thermodynamics. Isaac Singer (laughs) invented the sewing machine, and we can never forget Levi Strauss, who was the one who discovered, really, denim jeans. So there you have it. All the way from the theory of relativity to blue jeans, you have Jewish people who have given the world great discoveries and great inventions. Truly, God has kept that promise of blessing all the families of the world through Israel. Now, from one person, Abraham, God grew the nation of Israel— His grandson, Jacob, had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there is something that must be understood here that's very salient to the times that we live in. God didn't just make them a nation. He gave them a land. We see this with Abraham. God had a conversation with him one day after his nephew Lot had chosen to leave him and go a different direction. The Bible says in Genesis 13, after Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, look as far as you can see in every direction, north and south and east and west. I'm giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. One more time, as a permanent possession. And I'll give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they can't be counted. Go and walk through all the land in every direction I am giving it to you. Now, in Genesis 17, God reiterated that. He said, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an, ready for this, everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So that's the first deal God made with Abraham and consequently with the nation of Israel to make them into a great nation, to bless them, to bless those who bless them, to curse those who curse them, and to bless all the families of the earth through them and to give them the permanent possession of the land of Israel. But now there is a second deal that's very important to us. God made a deal with Abraham at the beginning of the Jewish nation, but now God makes a deal with King David who is really, in God's view, the first and the most important of all the kings of Israel. David had wanted to build a house for God, a temple. But God said to David, I'm not going to let you build this house for me. Your son Solomon will build it. But God said to David, I'm going to build a house for you. No, not a house that has walls and windows. God was talking about a house as a dynasty, a dynastic family of kings. Even today, when we look at dynasties and places that still have kings, we sometimes call it the house of Windsor or the house of whatever the name of the dynasty is. And that's what God was saying to David. I'm going to build a dynasty for you of your family. But listen to the language. In 2 Samuel 7 verse 16, God said, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Whoa. It's something to have a dynasty that lasts 100 years or 500 years even. But God said to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Well, for about 500 years, it seemed obvious that God would keep his word because there was a descendant of King David on the throne. We just finished a series called Kings and Queens, and we talked a lot about the kings who were in Jerusalem, David's descendants. But as we talked about in that series, Israel served idols. And in 586 B.C., the last king sat on the throne of David. In fact, there has not been a Jewish king, a descendant of King David, who sat on the throne since 586 B.C. Since then, the throne has sat empty, vacant. And beyond that, Israel also lost their land, and they never really came back. And that was finalized in A.D. 70 when the Romans came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And so for all those years, it looked like God's promises to Abraham and David weren't going to hold true. The land didn't seem to be a permanent possession, and there certainly wasn't a descendant of King David on the throne as God promised there would be forever. But the people of Israel kept hope. They believed that someday a son of David would come and claim the throne and get the land back. Well, 2,000 years ago, the person I believe who is that son of David who will rule forever, Jesus, came into our world. In fact, when Jesus was on the earth, he asked the question in Matthew 22, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And that quickly, the people, the Jewish people around him who knew history, they said, he is the son of David. Well, throughout Jesus' ministry, there were those who said that indeed Jesus was that Messiah, that he was the son of David. In fact, in Matthew 12, verse 23, there was a point where the crowd was astonished and they asked, could this be the son of David? Well, is Jesus a descendant of King David? Well, we have four stories of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of those books contain genealogies. I think about this every Christmas. Matthew has a lengthy genealogy, and then Luke also does. But what you'll find interesting is that the genealogies are just a little bit different. When you look at Matthew's genealogy, it's the genealogy of Jesus' father of record, Joseph. But we all know that Jesus was virgin-born. Joseph was not his biological father but that genealogical record of Joseph goes back through David's son Solomon. Luke's genealogy is the record of Mary, Jesus' biological mother, which goes all the way back through David's son Nathan. So as you can see, Jesus is proven to be the son of David, both with his father of record, Joseph, through David's son Solomon, and through his Mother Mary, that was his biological tie to David, so one way or the other, there's no getting around the fact that Jesus is a descendant of David. So when he was on the earth, there were those who thought, well, he looks like the Messiah. But therein lay the issue. Jesus was concerned about a couple of things that the people of his times questioned as to whether or not the Messiah would be interested in those things. For one thing, he seemed a lot more concerned with the brokenness inside of people than with political issues. And beyond that, he seemed to look beyond not only the Jewish nation and the surrounding area, he seemed to look to the whole world. Well, that created a rift that lasts until this day. Is Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, who will rule on the throne forever? Or should we still look for some Messiah to come? Well, I believe, of course, that he is that son of David, that Messiah who will rule forever. But To look at this from a historical perspective, it really looks like there were two deals that God made with the people of Israel that were dead. You have a nation that wasn't a nation for 2,500 years, a forever dynasty that God promised to David that ended 2,500 years ago. But go back to what Jesus said at the beginning of his discussion with the disciples. They wanted to know, what will be the sign of your coming? How will we know that we're in the last days? And Jesus said, look to the fig tree, look to Israel, because he said, when Israel begins to put forth leaves and bud, you will know that you're very close. So there you have it. Israel is God's clock to tell us what's going to happen into the future. But there's an ancient Jewish prophecy that speaks to us today. In fact, this prophet wrote 2,500 years ago, and yet what he wrote, it's been fulfilled in our lifetime. Let's read it. The guy's name is Ezekiel, And God has brought him to a very strange place to deliver a sermon. In Ezekiel 37 verse one, the Bible says, the Lord took hold of me and I was carried away by the spirit of the Lord to a valley with bones. He led me around and among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, son of man, can these bones become living people again? Well, as we'll see in just a moment, this is about the nation of Israel. And the fact that there were bones there signified that it seemed like the nation had died. And the fact that they were very dry signified that they hadn't been alive for a long period of time. And so God has asked him, can the nation of Israel live again? Well, that's a good question. God had promised that they would have a forever king, but there had been no king for 2,500 years. God had promised that the nation would last forever and that He would bless all The people of the world through that nation. And yet for 2,000 years, the nation of Israel didn't exist. God had said to Abraham, I'm going to give you the land as a permanent possession, but they had had no land for 2,000 years. No nation has survived that kind of loss. It's people being scattered to the four winds of the earth, not having a land, not having a nation. 2,000 years, as I say, no nation had survived that. No wonder God asked Ezekiel, can these dry bones live again? But add to those problems the fact that the Jewish people have been hunted and persecuted as despots have tried to wipe this population off the face of the earth. From Titus the Roman general to the Crusades to the pogroms to Hitler to Stalin, history records that 9 million Jews have been killed, but who really knows how many have been slaughtered because obviously there was no one to advocate for them who would have calculated the deaths that were caused by these evil people. And yet God said that they would have a nation again. You know, for 2000 years, as the Jewish people would finish the Passover Seder, they would say the same thing, next year in Jerusalem. But 2000 years is a long time to hold on to a dream. No wonder God said to the prophet Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones become living people again? I love Ezekiel's answer. He said, Lord, you know the answer to that. Verse four, then he said, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. Well, I've preached some sermons in some dead churches, but God is challenging Ezekiel to preach to a really dead church. God's message for Ezekiel to preach is, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath in you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you'll come to life. Then you will know that I'm the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly as I spoke, there was a rattling noise across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. This is where we get the song, The Hip Bones Connected to the Thigh Bone and so on and so forth. Verse 8. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones. The skin formed to cover their bodies, but still they had no breath in them. Then God said to me, Speak a prophetic message to the wind, son of man. Say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so that they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. Oh, that's interesting. We know that even today the Israeli army is one of the most powerful armies on the face of the earth. In fact, an ISIS commander said the one army he feared was the Israeli army. Verse 11. Then God said to me, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They're saying, we become old dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, oh, my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again, and return home to your own land, then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. I wanna do something now, I wanna talk about modern times. I wanna give you four dates, and the names of three people. Now, instantly, being ADD, I I know none of us is gonna remember those real quickly, so these are all in the New Spring app. So again, I wanna talk to you about four dates, and I wanna talk to you about three people. The dates are 1917, 1948, 1967, and you guessed it, 2018. And I also want to talk to you about three names. The names are Theodore Herzl, Haym Wiseman, and Eddie Jacobson. That's a guy from Kansas City. I'll explain. Well, let's talk about Theodore Herzl. Back in the last part of the 19th century, this guy, Theodore Herzl, a young Jewish man, had a vision of the Jewish people being able to return to a homeland in Palestine. He started an organization called the World Zionist Organization. And every year they would get together at some major city in Europe and they would dream about the possibility of the Jewish people coming back and having a place in Palestine. But that's all it was. It was a dream. And it wandered kind of here and there. And, but the organization grew. But in the passage of time, Theodore Herzl, began to believe that maybe it wasn't possible for the Jewish people to regather in Palestine. Perhaps they should just settle for a homeland somewhere. And he began to talk to them about settling in Uganda. Well, some of the young leaders that he had inspired previously said, we're not having any of it. It's either a homeland in Palestine or nothing at all. One of those young guys was a young chemist by the name of Haim Wiseman. Now, we start moving toward this first date, 1917. Haim Wiseman became a leading figure in this World Zionist organization. He would talk to anybody he could talk to about this idea of the Jewish people having a homeland in Palestine. Well, up to this point, he was just a Jewish chemist living in Great Britain. But something happened, World War I. And the people of Britain, they needed a smokeless gunpowder. In fact, they depended upon it. The problem was that this smokeless gunpowder had to have a primary component, acetone. And they had imported all their acetone from Germany, who was the enemy they were fighting. So where are they going to get this component? Where are they going to get this smokeless gunpowder to prosecute the war? Enter our friend, this young chemist, Haim Wiseman. Because you see, he had figured out how to make acetone out of carrots and potatoes and chestnuts. And, of course, he became very important and very famous in Great Britain. I mean, suddenly this unknown chemist was in the halls of power talking to all the leaders of Great Britain about the Jewish people having a homeland in Palestine. Well, that brings us to 1917. There was the Foreign Secretary of Great Britain named Alfred Balfour, who had been prime minister, who had gotten into these conversations with Haim Wiseman, and he issued a position paper that we call in history the Balfour Declaration. It was just simply that the Jewish people should have a homeland in Palestine. After World War I, probably largely because of the impact of Haim Wiseman, the chemist, on the successful outcome of World War I, the League of Nations picked up on the paper, the position paper of Great Britain, of Alfred Balfour, and they said, yes indeed, the Jewish people should have a homeland in Palestine. But as the Jews have discovered throughout the years, oftentimes they would get lip service from world powers, but they wouldn't follow through. And so from 1917 all the way till 1948, well, that position paper from the British government, it existed, but it lay dormant. And along came World War II and the Holocaust. And Hitler was responsible for killing 6 million Jews. And the world was and continues to be, rightfully so, horrified. And suddenly on the front burner was this issue of whether or not the Jewish people should have a nation. But now the problem is the Arab powers are in control of this region. Great Britain is somewhat managing the area that we know of as Israel today. And the other world powers, like the United States, that depend on the oil production of Arab nations... We're in kind of a political soup. There was a general sense that Israel should have a homeland, and yet on the other hand, there was this great terror of offending Arab powers. And so within all this conflict, the sympathy for the Jews because of the Holocaust, and yet the fear of the Arab powers, there was this stalemate. Add to that stalemate that Great Britain just got tired of managing this hotbed area, and they said, we are going to withdraw. Well, I'm giving you a lot of history real quickly. And of course, I'm not even beginning to touch the hem of the garment. There's so much more, and I hope you'll study it. But let's just simply say this, that the Jewish leaders decided if there ever is going to be a time for us to exist as a nation, that time is now. And because they had been so persecuted, they said the only way we can have hope is to come from all over the world, just as God prophesied, and to have our own homeland in the very place that God gave to our ancestor Abraham. The elephant in the room was the question, would any major power recognize the sovereign state of Israel? Well, Harry Truman was president and he was a fair person, but the problem that he had with recognizing Israel was that his State Department didn't want to do it, neither did his contingency at the UN. Zionist leaders were trying to talk to him, but he got so upset with them he said, I don't ever want to see anyone from the Zionist organization again. So now these Jewish leaders have an issue on their hands. They need the help of President Truman, but he's agitated with them and he won't see them. Enter Eddie Jacobson. Eddie Jacobson was a childhood friend of President Truman. They met when they were teenagers in Kansas City, and they ran a canteen together when they were both in the army in World War I. When they got out of the army, they decided to open up a men's clothing store. It didn't last very long, but President Truman's childhood friend a Jewish person named Eddie Jacobson. Well, the Jewish organization knew that if anybody could get in to see Harry Truman, his old buddy from Kansas City, Eddie Jacobson, just might get in. Eddie Jacobson went basically unannounced to see President Truman. And when President Truman invited him in, Eddie Jacobson said, You know, Harry, you've had a hero all your life, Andrew Jackson. He said, I have a hero. He is, I think, the greatest Jew alive right now, Haim Wiseman. And he said, he's an elderly man and very sick, and he's traveled thousands of miles to see you, and you won't see him. He said, Harry, that's not like you. And based on that statement, President Truman said, okay, I'll see Haim Wiseman one more time. Haim Wiseman and President Truman had a meeting, and when that meeting was over, President Truman had declared that the United States of America would indeed recognize the sovereign state of Israel if they declared their independence. On May 14, 1948, at 6 o'clock in the evening Eastern Time, the Jewish state of Israel declared its independence. Eleven minutes later, the United States of America recognized the sovereign state of Israel, upsetting Truman's State Department and his UN contingency. But the nation of Israel was reborn, just as God had said it would be, to the prophet Ezekiel. As was his habit, the president's final decision gratified a nation and astonished the world. The United States recognizes the provisional government as the de facto authority of the new state of Israel. But even though Israel is a sovereign nation, there's one major problem. They don't have the old city of Jerusalem where the temple is located. That part of Jerusalem, the old city is still in the hands of the Jordanians, and the people of Israel, given all the geopolitical concerns, are not in a hurry to get the old city of Jerusalem back. In fact, they are basically willing to let it go. But along comes 1967, three years before, a lot of the Arab powers had shut off part of the water supply of the people of Israel. Beyond that, the Egyptian President Nasser was threatening to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And so you have the six-day war. A rabbi friend of mine says it really is three two-day wars. It was a two-day war with Egypt, a two-day war with Syria, and a two-day war with Jordan. On the first day of that six-day war, basically the nation of Israel wiped out miraculously the air force of the Egyptians and left the desert strong with Soviet-made armaments that Egypt had said they would use to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Israel had hoped that Jordan would not get into the fray. In fact, they had had a fairly peaceful relationship with each other. But Jordan decided that in order to cooperate with their allies, that they would attack Israel. And in that attack, which was all the way from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, Israel had to defend itself. And the IDF sent paratroopers into the city of Jerusalem. And they fought valiantly through the streets of Jerusalem, losing A number of soldiers, Lieutenant General Mordecai Hur, who was the leader of that contingent, radioed, we are at the temple site. And a few moments later, his walkie-talkie crackled this message, the temple mount is ours. The temple mount is ours. And for the first time in 2,000 years, the very epicenter of Jewish life now belonged to the Jewish people. You know, we have one more date that we want to talk about, and that's May 14, 2018. Because even though Jerusalem belonged to the Jews and they regarded it as its capital, none of the other nations of the world really did. They didn't want to put their embassies there because just as in 1948, they didn't want to upset the surrounding nations. But on May 14, 2018, this year, 70 years after Israel became a nation, the United States of America once again said, we recognize not only the sovereign right of the people of Israel to exist, we recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and we place our embassy there. But what does all that mean to us beyond the fact that God keeps His word? Well, I want you to hear a verse that Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke. He said in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, as He talked about the future of Israel, "...they will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all nations." Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then he said in verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That's an event that will happen yet in the future. Look at this in verse 27. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Think about this. Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trodden down until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then he said, when this begins to change, you will know that your redemption is drawing near. Wow. These things, Israel becoming a nation again. Jerusalem not being trodden underfoot anymore. Well, these things are already happening. And Jesus said, when these things begin to happen, look up. Your redemption is drawing very near. Well, that redemption that he speaks of is when Jesus returns and makes all things right. But there's another redemption that has already taken place, a redemption that happens personally and individually in the lives of anyone, regardless of their race or nationality. It is when you and I understand or anyone else understands that we are flawed, broken sinners and that God has made a way for us to connect with him. Jesus came into our world. And the reason why he wasn't understood the first time was he came to pay for sin. He came to make things right for individuals. And he hung on a Roman cross. And for six hours, he paid the price for all our sins. And the blood that came out of his body is a currency that paid for every sin that we've ever committed. And the Bible tells us three days later, he rose from the grave. And anyone who puts confidence in him can be redeemed. Redemption means to be brought back into a right standing or repurchased. And anyone who asks Jesus for salvation, for eternal life can be forgiven and know for sure that they're going to heaven when they die. Has that happened for you? Would you be willing to put your confidence and trust in the hand of this person who will someday rule and reign forever? This person who died on a cross for you, if you will, you can be forgiven. You can have everlasting life, and you'll have so much to look forward to. I'm going to pray a prayer right now that calls out to him, and if you'd like to pray that prayer with me, I invite you to do so. You ready? Here we go. I'll pray it slowly. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me and make me your child. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.